We are going to get to the preaching today, and we are continuing our series in the book of Ezra. And so let's turn to Ezra chapter 9 together, and I will read that uh, for you. The Word of God reads, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening service. Then at the evening service, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, and he has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave us through your servants and the prophets when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much, God, that every single week we get to read it, we get to enjoy it, and uh, we get to understand it together. But more than that, we get to hear your voice through it. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us clearly, and just like some of these songs that we just sang, that we would once again realize your worthiness to be worshipped, and to be lived for with all that we have. And God, that you would return all of us to a life that gives you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as I begin today's message, first I want to thank uh, Aiden 
for preaching last week. Thank you so much, Aiden. Let's give him a hand. He just walked in. There you go. What great timing. Uh, I love it when Aiden preaches. He is our student minister, and he uh, is learning how to preach. And so I'm so proud of him for that. And secondly, I'm thankful because I get a week break. So, you know, practical reasons as well. But we're, we're going to dive back into Ezra chapter 9 together. We're almost done with this book. And, uh, you know, I want to begin our message today with an apology. I actually got some facts wrong in my previous message about Ezra 7 and 8. You know, I had said that Ezra um, was called to rebuild the city and its walls, but that actually was incorrect. So I, I apologize for that. That's actually Nehemiah. I don't know why I was thinking about Nehemiah at the time. We'll get to him soon. Uh, so I wanted to correct that. Ezra was actually called to Jerusalem to uh, increase and to strengthen the worship of God in this new Jerusalem that they were building. They had just built the temple. They just built the altar. And so, you know, it was time for a priest, Ezra, the top priest, to come back and to infuse that new community with the word of God so that they could be strengthened and encouraged to worship God with all that they have. And so, you know, Ezra was actually, he actually embarked on a spiritual mission, you know, to encourage and to strengthen the people of God and to deepen their worship. Is that cool? So I apologize for getting that wrong. Um, but let's move forward. You know, there's three things I want to do in our passage today with our message today. The first is I want to start by reminding us why God brought these people out of uh, Persia back to, or Babylon back to uh, Jerusalem. Secondly, I want to talk about the sin that Ezra encounters when he gets to Jerusalem. And then lastly, I want to talk about the solution to that sin. So why did God bring uh, the people out of Babylon to Jerusalem? And the answer, we've been talking about it for, you know, the first eight chapters of Ezra. God brought them back and gave them this second chance. He restored them back so that they could live lives of worship. That's what we were all called to do. God just wants us to live this life of worship. That's why Ezra 1 starts with them building the altar and the temple first. He's saying worship has to be central in your life. It is what you were saved for. It's what you were created for. And even in Ezra chapter 8, the previous chapter that we studied, Ezra begins the journey with a fast. And then he ends the journey making sacrifices in Jerusalem. Before he even says hi to anybody there, he goes and he makes sacrifices. Why? Because it was a journey of worship. And once again, from 1 to 8 so far, the whole point is that uh, we were created and we were saved to worship God in all that we do. Is that cool? That's it. That's the message of Ezra. And so that's what Ezra fully expected to find when he got back to Jerusalem. You know, he expected to see people worshiping God, loving God, making worship central within their lives. But what he actually saw, as we read in the passage, literally made him tear out the hairs from his head and his beard. Have you ever seen anyone tear out the hairs? Me neither. But it must have been that bad. You know, it made him tear his clothes apart. Have you ever seen anyone tear off their clothes? I have, you know, WWE, World Wrestling, you know, World Wrestling Federation, it used to be called, anyway, but this is not it. This is not wrestling. You know, they were, he just tore his clothes because what he saw appalled him so much. Was that disturbing? And so what did he see when he got there? He saw massive unfaithfulness, right? And not just from the people, but especially in the lives of its top leaders. And the sin that he saw was intermarriage with the peoples 
of the land, with the surrounding people. Now, what you need to understand is that this command not to marry foreign people uh, is not a racist command. Sometimes we think, oh, God must just love the Israelites that much, and he thinks everyone else is not as good as the Israelites, you know, like some Koreans do about the Korean culture. Anyway, but God's not like that. God's not a racist. God's the one that created all the races. But the command to not marry the foreign peoples of the land was given to the people of God so that they could continue to live a life of worship unimpeded by any other influences, right? And so um, marrying people who worshipped other gods, which the people of the lands did, would influence the people of God to no longer uh, have an allegiance to God alone. They would start worshiping other gods as well. And so that's why God didn't want intermarriage with foreign people. It wasn't a racist thing. It was a faith issue. God wanted to protect the sanctity of the faith and the worship of his own people. Do you guys get that? That's the reason why, uh, you know, God didn't want intermarriages to happen like that um, or interracial marriages to happen like that. But, and to prove that, um, let me just share with you a few examples of interracial marriage in the Bible that God loved, okay? It's not, he's not against interracial marriage. It's about faith, you know? And the reason why God loved these marriages and blessed these marriages so much is because these spouses loved and feared God so greatly, right? You know Moses, you know that guy Moses? He actually married uh, a non-Israelite, Zipporah. She was a Midianite, non-Jew, But God loved her because she feared God and she loved God himself. And she's the one that kind of constantly was pushing Moses to fear God and obey God more. You guys know that book of Ruth? Boaz, the Jew, marries a Moabite who is traditionally the enemy of the Jews. But Ruth was a Moabite. But she loved and feared God so much and trusted God so much that God honored her by making her a direct descendant or direct ancestor of Jesus Christ himself, right? So, you know, these women, they feared God so much. These women didn't lead their husbands' hearts away from the worship of God, but they encouraged and empowered them to worship God even greater with their lives, which is why God designed marriage in the first place, which is a totally different message for a totally different time that once again, we'll probably cover a little bit later. Uh, But more importantly, that's why God loved and blessed these marriages. So God is not opposed to interracial marriage whatsoever. He is against not just interfaith marriages, but if I can broaden the principle, marrying anything that would steal our hearts away from the life of worship that we were all saved and created to live. Do you guys get that? But the question I want us to start out with is, why is this that bad, though? You know, why is interfaith or like being married to something that would take our hearts away from God so bad? And let me attempt to answer that question a little bit. For me, I feel like, aren't there there worse sins you can commit? I mean, isn't murder more heinous than marrying someone of a different faith? I mean, isn't destroying someone's life worse? You know, why aren't we tearing our clothes apart for those types of things and pulling out our hair for those types of things? And here's the answer. The answer is when we choose to love and worship someone or when we choose to love and worship something else more than God, we are actually betraying God. 
okay? And here we go. All I know, all of us aren't married, but can you imagine if you are? I know some of us are married, but can you imagine if you were married um, and you're in love with your spouse, hopefully, right? But can you imagine your spouse not only cheating on you, but falling in love with and then going off and marrying another person? Right? How would you feel? That's like comprehensive betrayal, isn't it? It's not just, oh, yeah, I don't, I know, I kind of love you, but I love this person a lot more. I want to live with that person, not you anymore. I love this person so much, and I want to commit myself permanently to this person. It is a comprehensive act of betrayal. You know, if you never knew, the relationship between God and his people has always been defined by one word in the Bible, and that one word is covenant. Covenant is like this eternal promise that two people make to each other. Ever since the garden, God had made repeated covenants throughout the Old Testament, saying that he's always going to be faithful to his people unconditionally, no matter what. And ever since the garden, the only thing that God had ever asked of his people is what? To reciprocate that same promise, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and being. So if you think about it in that way, the relationship between God and his people has always been like a marriage, right? And all he ever wanted was this mutual commitment to love each other and to be faithful to each other. Even in the New Testament, uh, God says that the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. So when the people of God willingly choose to give their hearts and literally covenant themselves in marriage to love someone who doesn't worship the Lord, it's a betrayal to the covenant that we made to God originally. The technical term for that is spiritual adultery. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. And that's why God's heart here is so crushed. That's why God is so offended. It's not just that I'm heartbroken, but I am absolutely offended because you chose to love another. Do you guys see that? That's what's happening in this passage. Now, I'm going to assume that most of us here will probably not marry someone out of the faith. You know, if you truly value Christ, if you truly living, if you truly value living a life of worship and you want to honor God with your life, uh, I hope that you choose not to marry a non-believer. Because if you do, it will be near impossible to keep your faith. And that's just the reality of it all. I've seen some of the greatest Christians, I grew up with some of the greatest Christians, but simply because they married a non-believer, eventually they became pagans. You know, they, they denied Jesus and they're no longer in the faith. And it's so sad. But, so here we go. I'm assuming that most of you probably are not gonna marry non-believers. But the question then is, um, even if we don't marry a non-believer, can we still be guilty of spiritual adultery? And the answer is yes. And that's, I think, the greater principle that we want to tackle today. Why? Because, or why, why, can be, why can we still be guilty of spiritual adultery? Because spiritual adultery is not just marrying anyone who loves other gods, but it is being in love, almost married to, and choosing to love and worship anything else or anyone else above God, right? And so if, anything, if there's anything that steals our hearts away from a, a life of worship, a life totally dedicated to the worship of God, that could be classified as spiritual adultery. You know, whenever we bind ourselves or commit ourselves to love and worship that which is not holy or honoring to God, what ends up happening a lot of times is we find it impossible to actually live the life of worship that we were created for and saved for. You know, there are people in, in, our, in, in, in churches 
who worship their work, right? You know, some people, some spouses yell at their spouses for being married to their work, right? They're so passionate about it that they ignore everything else. Or maybe they're, they worship their hobbies, or maybe they worship their online presence or online perception more than God. And, you know, whenever we choose to engage in those adulterous relationships, those sins slowly but surely kill our love for God. They kill our desire for worship. And one day you might wake up and you're like, well, I don't know why I don't want to worship God today. My guess is it's because we've been loving other things and maybe worshiping other things with our lives. So today, I want you to examine your lives. Just examine your life. What things or what people compete with God in your life for worship? Do any of them even trump God in terms of worship? If so, then not only do they make it hard for you to worship God with your life, but one day you may find yourself completely out of the faith, right? You know, uh, being a Christian for over 30 years, I've seen a lot of Christians um, unfortunately, I've seen many Christians fall away from the faith. And for some of them, you know, it was these devastating events that happened that they just couldn't get over. But for many, uh, a lot of times, it's, a, it's not a choice that they woke up one day and they made, I, I don't think I want to be a Christian anymore. But it's usually a series of gradual choices that they made every single day, little choices here and there not to worship God or not to or to love other things more than God that eventually led them to the point where they realized they don't need God anymore and that's how it happens in our story believe it or not these israelites were actually blessed because they got to be exiled right being exiled to a foreign land being taken over was God's means of grace for his people here in this passage. And the reason why is they had to get exiled in order for them to once again be reawakened to how God, how great God really is and how much they truly needed God. And they were reminded of the life that they were created and saved to live themselves. My guess is in our day and age, there's a part of me that feels like COVID is the same. I know COVID is a horrific thing, but maybe it served the same purpose for you. It may, I know it awakened me to what really matters in life, and especially when it comes to my faith, how really important it is. And maybe it's done the same for you. I know my busted ankle. You know, I've been on these crutches for like three weeks now. It's absolutely frustrating, but it's forced me to slow down as well. And you want to know something? It's reawakened me to the constant compromise in my faith. It's reawakened me to my less than great commitment to God. And so to me, being on crutches is God's means of grace. And I'm convinced that God is doing those things within your life right now. There are things that are happening that God is awakening you to so that you can see that he is truly worthy of our lives to worship for. And maybe it's even this message today. Maybe it's as obvious as that. So the question is what things or what people compete with God for worship in your life? Let's start identifying those today so that we can repent of them i'm sure but maybe for some of us we're like eddie i don't think any one thing really stands out you know i don't think any one thing is in real competition with god maybe and maybe that's the case you know maybe uh instead of one big thing maybe it's a series of many smaller gods that we're choosing to worship instead and my guess is that's probably true for a lot of christians today so let me share this and i hope it helps um you know we were created to worship god alone Okay, he 
We were created so that he could receive our all. That's it. But sin demented that. So to me, it makes perfect sense that when we are not worshiping God alone and we are not giving him all of our worship, that we'll actually spend our lives worshiping other things, trying to fill the void, whether we know it or not. That's what we're trying to do. But when we spend our lives worshiping all these other smaller gods, not only do we miss out on God himself, but we also never truly get to experience the comprehensive satisfaction that comes by worshiping God alone. Now, and so I, pr- I propose this. Here's the solution. I propose this. Just surrender and give God all of your worship, right? Um, now, I know some of you, when you hear that, you might be afraid or you might be hesitant to do that because you're, not, you're just not sure of what that even looks like or what that's going to look like. Maybe you're afraid to let go of, of a few things. But the thing is, what you do know on the other side of the coin is that God is Worthy enough. God is worthy of your all. So do it. Not only will you live the life of worship that you were created for, but do you know what the fruit of living a life of worship is? It's seeing God redeem all those other smaller gods in your life to be used for his glory. You know, before I I was ever on these crutches, uh, I'll be very frank with you, end of last year wasn't that good. Last year wasn't a good year for me. You know, I was a little bit down and depressed because of the lockdown, all that kind of stuff. I have some mental health issues and stuff. Anyway, I was watching Netflix a lot. I was watching YouTube a lot. And if I can say it, I think I was addicted. I would just wake up in the morning, go straight downstairs and watch, you know, and then I'd, I'd come out for lunch. You know, that's how it was. Anyway, Um, And I was just watching anything and anything that looked attractive. Maybe that's how you are. But the moment that I was reawakened to where I really was spiritually in my relationship with God, um, all of a sudden things started to shift. And I still watch Netflix, still watch YouTube. But now the things that I hunger for in terms of entertainment are things that really do promote God-centered values. You know, and the things that I start to, I'm starting to really detest are things that don't depict God-centered values at all. And I'm literally choosing away from those things. I know that's probably all of you because you guys are more holy than me. But that's, what, that's, that's what's happened. And the thing is, what I realized through that is that he changes us. You know, when we get right with God, when we choose to worship him, when he reawakens us to our need for worship, and we start and we take a step in that direction and we start to give him our all, he begins to change us. And it's awesome, awesome, because what you get to experience within your life is you get to see your values change. You get to see your heart change to what he values, and you begin to grow in your own life of worship. You guys see that? So identify those gods, repent of them, surrender them to the Lord so that you can live the life of worship that he always created you to live. I want to point out one more thing that Ezra does here and then end our message today. You know, Ezra, at the end of our passage, he prays this prayer of frustration in the last 10 verses. And if I can basically sum sum it up for you, this is what he says. He says, God, you exiled us to Babylon because... Our hearts, we turned our hearts to other gods. We literally gave our hearts to other gods. And so that's why you had to exile us. But out of your grace, you brought us back. You gave us a second chance to get it right. And now we're here. But look at us. You know? 
even after all of the war, all the battles, all the death, even after all the journey to getting exiled, living there for like 50 years and then coming back, even after all the warnings, look at us, we still didn't learn our lesson. We came back and we ended up doing the exact same thing that we were exiled for. We gave our hearts to other gods when you restored us to worship you alone. And Ezra is absolutely devastated. But here's the good news. Ezra is not without hope. Right? Let's look at verse 15. Verse 15, the last verse says, But Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. What's he saying here? He's saying, God, we're all sinners. And none of us, because of our sin, we're guiltier than the highest of heavens. That's what he says in the previous verse. And because of our guilt and because of our sin, no one can stand before you. But, he says, there is hope in your righteousness alone. And so he ends this chapter with hope. And that's what I'd like to do too with my message. So God, he says, the only hope that sinners have is your righteousness. Do you guys know that's the reason why God gave us Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ literally is the righteousness of God given to sinners so that we might be righteous and become righteous as well. So that we could have right standing before God. No sinner can stand in his presence, but those who are made righteous with God's righteousness can, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he took all of our sins, he took all of our compromise, he took all of our adultery and placed it upon himself and paid the full penalty that we deserve to pay for those sins. And at the same time, he then chose to clothe us with his righteousness. He took off of our clothes of sinfulness and then he placed his clothes of righteousness upon us. And can I tell you what it means for Christ to clothe us with his perfect righteousness? It means two things practically. The first thing that it means is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of our adultery, all of our compromise. And what that means is that whenever we become reawakened to the compromise within our lives, and no matter how many times till the day that we die, we find ourselves in compromise, we can always turn to Christ and be loved and be forgiven and be restored forever. Why? Because of his perfect righteousness, which perfectly loves us, perfectly forgives us, and perfectly restores us eternally. So no matter how many times you sin, no matter how bad the sin is, we can always turn to God and be loved, forgiven, perfectly. So if you've been worshiping other gods, come to Jesus. Put your faith in Christ and what he did upon the cross for you. He will not only forgive you, but also declare you righteous once again. If you've been compromising, come to Jesus. If you've been spiritually adulterous, come to Jesus. And can I make a special invitation to those of you in this room who might feel hopeless, maybe, in your sins? You know, in our passage today, Ezra felt a bit lost. You know, he knew that the Israelites were so knee-deep within their sinfulness that even he didn't know what to do. 
Maybe some of you feel that way as well. When I say that you need to live a life of worship, maybe worship for you is like this faraway dream that you can't imagine even experiencing once again. But the answer once again is come to Jesus. Can I invite you to come to Jesus once again? I mean, he knows you. He knows your story. He knows you better than you know yourself. And the greatest part of that is he knows you, he sees it all, and he perfectly loves you. And he perfectly wants to forgive you and he wants to embrace you with his righteousness, right? His arms are open wide for you, so come. Number two, what it means that we've been clothed with his perfect righteousness is that it means that God has now given us every spiritual blessing and every spiritual gift that Jesus had, because he's now clothed us with his righteousness perfectly. And so what that means is that the life of worship that Jesus lived when he was on earth is now been given to us, which means we can now live the exact same life of worship that Jesus did. We've been given every spiritual gift and every spiritual blessing so that we can actually live that life of worship out, right? And some of us, we feel hopeless because we're like, dude, I don't even know how to do that. But God says, no, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the ability. I'll give you the wisdom. I'll give you the, I'll give you the know-how to live that life of worship if only you would trust in Jesus, right? The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's in you. Isn't that awesome? Yes, I know some of us have compromised. We may have compromised, but because of Jesus, there is always hope, hope of forgiveness, hope of restoration, and the hope to live the life of worship that we are always created, that we were always saved to live. Because of what he has done, every time we turn to Christ and we turn to him, we can always be loved, forgiven, and restored once again. And when we are, we are then enabled to live a love-driven worship. You know, whenever I say a phrase, love-driven worship, a lot of times people misunderstand that, saying, oh yeah, so that our worship could be driven by our love for God. No, that's like almost silly and impossible. But true worship can only be driven when we realize how much we're truly loved by him. And that's why, you know, his love for us is always perfect. His love for us is limitless. His love for us is unconditional. And when we realize that and we're reawakened to that, we will always have enough from Jesus to worship him with all that we have as well. So let's be right with God today. If we're not, let's get right with God today. And let's begin living those lives of love-filled, love-driven worship that we were not only created for, but that God sacrificed his own son so that we could be saved for, for his glory. Let's pray. You know, sin is serious. Sin was so serious to God that he actually had to sacrifice his own son to pay the penalty for it. So let's take it seriously. You know, some, maybe, maybe we don't recognize those sins, but we can definitely feel the after effects of it, the consequences of it. It destroys our heart for worship. It destroys our connection with God. And if you have been compromising and you recognize those things going on within your life, let's repent. Let's ask God to show us our sinfulness. And then, but more importantly than knowing what we've sinned and repenting of those things, let's look to Jesus. Let's put our faith in him once again, knowing that his love for us is perfect, that his forgiveness over us is comprehensive, that his restoration is complete. 
and let that love for you allow you to love him once again. And let's allow that love to fuel a life of worship that we were saved to live. Let's pray. exact same prayer point and the reason why I want to repeat it is very simple you know a lot of times we can come to church and we just do church and we know it's supposed to be about Jesus it's supposed to be about God all that stuff but sometimes we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable to God again you know what I'm talking about we kind of guard our hearts we know what's right we know what direction we should be going in and instead of really engaging God and maybe be being a little vulnerable and honest with where we really are before God, a lot of times we just kind of protect our hearts and just kind of endure until the end. And maybe, and sometimes we convince ourselves, maybe it's enough that I feel bad a little bit or that I should, and that was enough for this Sunday. And it's up to you. But can I just ask you, don't do that. Because you're just missing out, and that's the whole point. You're missing out on the life that you were created and saved to live. You're missing out on how awesome it is to be with God every day. Don't choose that. That's what gets us into trouble every day. That's what makes our weeks the same weeks we maybe we've been living. If you know that a life of worship is the answer, choose it. Come to God humbly. Come to God asking Him to show you your sins and to repent of those things so that you could realize how amazing he really is once again. And let's live a life that's driven by his love for us so that he might truly be great within our life. So can I take, ask you to take one more minute, exact same prayer point. Let's just be honest with God. Let's allow ourselves to want God again. Let's pray.
our people. And I pray, God, that you would just give all of us this heart that just wants to live this life of worship for you. We know, so many of us, we've been a part of church so long um, that our hearts and our minds have even grown numb to all this truth. So God, I pray that your truth would break through, that your spirit would break through, giving us the courage to once again want you more than anything else. My Father, I know this room, there are people who have been hurt by the church, hurt by families, hurt by things in the past. But Lord, I pray, God, that you would redeem those things so they might see all those things through the eyes of the cross. And Father, so they might see those things through your eyes. So that those pains that hurt us in the past can now be these objects of praise, these moments of praise, because those revealed how amazing you are to them. And Father, I pray, God, that you would, there are people in our room, this room, that have like these addictions to sin, and you know, we're afraid to let go of those, but God, I pray that you would break those addictions in this room. God, I pray that you would break those fears and those hesitancies to let go of things that are so precious to us, even though we know that you're great, even though we know that your love for us is amazing and perfect, even though we know the other choice and what's on the other side. Father, we pray, give people the courage to take that step away from those other gods so they might love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and being. And Father, make us a worshiping community once again, people who not only realize and recognize and know how amazing and worthy you are, but people who actually take steps to make you greater within our lives. Lord, help us to become that kind of people for your glory. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray.